Thank you all very much for coming this evening. It's very good to see so many people here and I hope I'm going to say something of interest for every one of you. It's a great honour and pleasure to have been invited to give a lecture in these two series, the Dean's series and the Sydney Ideas series. I'd like to thank the Dean of the Faculty of Education and Social Work, Professor Diane Mayer, very much for inviting me. And I note that coincidentally, in exactly one month's time, my colleague from Oxford, John Furlong, will be giving the next education talk in this series. And for any of you who are able to attend both of these events, you'll certainly be getting a strong dose of the dark blues. <laughs> However, before I get into the main core of this talk, I'd just like to share a few reflections arising from my own personal experiences since retiring last September. In particular, I want to mention the previous three keynote lectures that I've given, respectively in Oslo, Norway, in Leeds, in England, and in Chongqing, in China. And today's lecture is actually a development of those three. The first two of these talks were given as memorial lectures in honour of two great women in teacher education. Four or five months ago, I gave a lecture at the University of Oslo in memory of a great Norwegian educational researcher and teacher educator, Dr. Helga Eng, who had a profound influence on the development of teacher education in that country, a country which is still leading the way in many respects. Her approach started from children. She was deeply interested in how children learn and develop. Most famously, she focused on how children's drawing demonstrated their growing understanding of the world around them. This was a key interest for many who believed that education should be child-centred, although, of course, that term is somewhat discredited, at least in many European countries. As such approaches, child-centred approaches, have often been stereotyped as being romantic and sentimental. But education that focuses on the learner does not have to be either of those things. Indeed, it's difficult to see how any education that is humane and concerned with individual development can do anything other than start from the learner and his or her attributes, dispositions and needs. In other words, it all depends what you mean by child or learner-centred approaches. Helga Eng became known for her commitment to what was called universal realistic humanism. An important part of that commitment, implied by universal and realistic, is a commitment to communication and to the wider community. In other words, this is not just education for the individual, but education through the individual for the benefit of the wider society. The second keynote I want to refer to was the Winifred Mercia lecture at Leeds Beckett University in March. This speech I was invited to give by the Winifred Mercia Professor of Teacher Education, one Laurie Beckett, 
she of this parish, as they say, and who sends greetings to her compatriots, especially those who know her. Winifred Mercia had a very influential career. Wherever she worked, whether at the universities of Cambridge or Oxford, or during her time as assistant principal at Leeds Training College, or then as principal at Whitelands College of Education in London, she was an inspirational teacher and leader. Dogged at many points in her life by ill health, but always driven by her deep religious commitment, she had a profound influence not only on numerous individuals who were in the process of becoming teachers, but also on the curriculum for teacher education, initial teacher education. This latter subject continues to be debated to this day, of course. Indeed, it's one of several critical issues in teacher education nationally, uh, internationally, and in England, we await with interest the outcomes from the current working group on this very topic, established in the wake of the Carter Review of Teacher Education, or teacher training, as the English government insists on calling it. Mercia had a profound commitment to the relationship between intellectual development and practical experience in professional learning, a female maternity. Although it's not only women educators and teacher educators that have emphasized these themes, it is certainly the case that a commitment to focusing on the learner has been a common characteristic of many of those great women who have made major contributions. I'm thinking also of people like Maria Montessori in Italy, Susan Isaacs and the Macmillan sisters, Rachel and Margaret in England, or more recently, Sylvia Ashton Warner in New Zealand and Sybil Marshall in England. These were certainly among the people whose work inspired me as I was preparing to be a primary school teacher when undertaking my own Bachelor of Education at the College of St. Matthias in Bristol in the early 1970s. Also in England, many of the principals of the colleges of education during the 20th century were women, in addition to Mercia herself. And if we look to the USA, where I was a couple of weeks ago, so influential in teacher education research at present, three of the most important contributors are women. Marilyn Cochran-Smith, Linda Darling-Hammond, and Gloria Ladson-Billings. Indeed, two weeks ago, at the American Educational Research Association conference in Washington, D.C., in a symposium that I was co-convening, a compatriot of yours presented a paper about the policy context for teacher education in Australia. Among the slides she presented was a list of influential teacher education researchers here. And of the six names on the list, all but one was a woman, is a woman. And indeed, I'm honoured that a couple of those women are in this room tonight. Teacher education is clearly an academic field where the contribution of women is very much to the fore. And the likes of John Furlong, or myself, are something of a minority. Now, the third keynote I've given recently was at an international conference held at Southwestern University in Chongqing, China, just a week ago. 
a university, I have to say, which has a wonderful urban campus, which might even be said to rival the campus we're on today. The conference concerned major themes in teacher education, and the main learning for me on my first visit to mainland China was to start rethinking some of what I say about teacher education in a global context. For example, around issues of scale, economics, and policy making. At that university, they are working with something like 4,000 teacher education students at any time. This makes the 200 per annum at Oxford seem like pretty small beer. And when questions about how to influence teacher education policy came up at the conference, it was very difficult for someone like me, used to living and working in what we like to call a multi-party parliamentary democracy, it was difficult to offer helpful comments. By the way, that's not to judge one system or the other. Indeed, as we shall see, I shall suggest that policy processes are far from straightforward in England. So, with those observations as my scene-setting preamble, I turn now to the main presentation. In this talk, I'm going to walk, work through the following five themes. The politicisation of teaching, the changing nature of teaching, the importance of research in teaching and teacher education, some words about underlying values in teaching, and finally some thoughts about enduring themes in teacher education. My conclusion will concern the nature of 21st century teaching and what we should be concerned with teachers in this century knowing. So firstly, the politicisation of teaching. Before we examine the core questions of my talk concerning the nature of teaching and teachers' knowledge, let us acknowledge how the wider policy context affecting teachers and their work has changed in the late 20th century and into the 21st. It is now widely recognised that education has become much more of a political issue than it was formerly. Secondly, that teaching is at the heart of questions of educational quality. The nature of teacher education is therefore very significant. Thirdly, that there are global influences on education and teaching right across the world, both in what we call the developed world and in the developing world. And these, I would say, almost universally acknowledged truths now are respectively evidenced by looking at any general election that goes on and the importance that education now gets as a political issue, the importance that politicians, for their part, attach to transnational reports such as those produced by McKinsey and the OECD's TALIS study on teaching and learning uh, across the world, and thirdly, by the overwhelming influence of transnational comparative studies of student achievement such as those provided by the OECD's PISA. 
As calm and objective analysts of these matters, we may have some deep concerns about the ways in which political ideologies impinge on education and how major corporations may have motives when they get involved in education that are not entirely altruistic and how flawed some of the interpretations, especially by politicians, of PISA may be. But that is the world we are living in and that is the world that children are growing up in and the world in which new teachers are being prepared for their careers. The Finnish educator, Parsi Salberg, has of course managed to capture a great deal of this in his term, the germ, the global education reform movement, which in its epidemiological spread around the world, has at least the following five characteristics, all of which can be detected in some shape or form in education systems around the world. The trend towards standardization, the increased focus on core subjects, a more tightly prescribed curriculum, the transfer of management and leadership models from the corporate world and the promotion and implementation of high-stakes accountability policies. This is certainly the case in England and to some extent in other parts of the United Kingdom. Paradoxically, Salberg notes that these trends have been far less apparent in Finland itself where, of course, there have been generally consistently successful outcomes in terms of PISA results. Indeed, Salberg himself is generally very critical of these trends as being somewhat limiting of a fully rounded education. Now, the reason that education has become so important in global politics is because of the widely held view that economic progress and development are very dependent on educational progress. In the developing world, this may still be manifest through the prioritization given to raising levels of basic literacy and numeracy. In the so-called developed world, however, the focus may be much more on the so-called knowledge economy, where knowledge itself becomes a new form of capital. Education, therefore, is about developing the technical knowledge and intellectual skills that lead to success in economic competition. So, in short, neoliberalism, for that is the best label for these economic, political and social phenomena, has become the dominant ideology across the Western world. And even in the former, formerly communist countries, we see evidence of marketization becoming increasingly prevalent. However, across the world, this neoliberal polity has been the underpinning to sustain a broadly capitalist economic system driven by markets and by profit, an essential feature of which is differentiation within the population in terms of ownership and in terms of levels of income. Inequality is an inevitable dimension of neoliberalism and this inequality continues to be both within nation states 
although greatly exaggerated in some states more than others, and between nation states, and indeed between economic blocks around the world. My own view, therefore, is that while the visible politics may have changed, and we see the emergence and development of neoliberalism, and that includes putting education much more centrally into the mix, as I've said, the underlying economic system pertains much as it did throughout the 20th century. Significant social inequalities remain. Regional conflicts continue. Forced and unforced migrations ensue. Poverty persists. And of course, we do also have a new challenge in the form of climate change and the need for environmental sustainability. Now, what has all this got to do with teaching? I can hear some of you sitting there and thinking. Well, against this backdrop of shifting dominant political and educational debates, but continuing economic and social challenges, how has the work of teachers changed? As politicians around the world have become increasingly involved in educational policy, we've seen accelerating rates of reform in curriculum, in assessment, and in pedagogy, to invoke Basil Bernstein's three educational message systems. Given this pace of change, it's perhaps not surprising that in England there is currently great concern about recruiting and retaining teachers in the profession. For example, just last month on the 6th of March, we saw two stories in the news which are indicative of some of the current issues in teaching, especially in England. Our current education secretary, Nikki Morgan, said a number of schools are struggling to recruit good teachers but warned that talk of a crisis in recruitment may deter people from the sector. Jumping to the end of that quotation, interesting, she says, on fears that highlighting recruitment issues may put people off becoming a teacher, she said, let's focus on commenting to the outside world on what a great profession teaching is, how rewarding it can be, and what good teachers have the power to do. Yes, we know that, but what about the inside world? What are teachers saying to each other as they have to say this positive message to the outside world? And on the same day, speaking ahead of International Women's Day, she said a lack of female head teachers, a crippling waste of talent. Interesting comparison with the remarks I was making about leading women teacher educators. It was noted that three quarters of teachers are women, but only 37% of head teachers are. And again, jumping to the end of that, when asked if teaching is a sexist profession, the education secretary said the issue is that until you help women to senior positions to become role models, it's a self-perpetuating cycle. She added, there's a danger of groupthink if all the top positions are dominated by men, which is closer to unconscious bias than institutionalised sexism. Presumably, unconscious bias is less of a problem than institutionalised sexism. 
I find it quite difficult to determine the difference between those two terms. Now these stories emanate from England and it's becoming increasingly clear that England is something of a special case in these matters. As we have explored in more detail in our recent book, Teacher Education in Times of Change. This was written by a group of us and one of the uh, groups that Di referred to, the Teacher Education Group, which is a cross-UK research group and actually involves colleagues from the Republic of Ireland as well. So we look at some of these differences in those five jurisdictions in this book and we do tend to find that whilst workload issues and gender imbalances are concerns among teachers in around all of those countries, they do have a more exaggerated form in England. As I've noted elsewhere, the particular ways in which these political changes that I was talking about earlier have impacted on teaching and teacher education does seem to vary significantly in different parts and reflects the relationships that exist within civil society between professionals and politicians, as well as with the wider community and the mass media. My usual exemplar of these differences is the comparison between England and Scotland, two parts of the so-called United Kingdom. Just five years ago, we saw very different approaches to the reform of teaching and teacher education in these two contiguous countries. In England, the then Secretary of State, one Michael Gove, a politician of course, set out a view of teaching as essentially a craft to be learned in an apprenticeship style, or as he put it, on the job from existing teachers. In the white paper from 2010, which uh, best attribute of which was its title, The Importance of Teaching, he wrote, teaching is a craft and it's best learned as an apprentice observing a master craftsman, oh minister, you better put all woman as well, uh, watching others and being rigorously observed yourself as you develop is the best route to acquiring mastery in the classroom. Well, I don't think any of us are likely to argue with the importance of that learning in the classroom, but to imply that is sufficient in order to become a lifelong career-developing teacher, I think is dangerous. And indeed, since then, since 2010, we have seen in England the marginalisation, or in some cases the removal, of the university contribution from teacher education in the name of a school-led system. And indeed, a small number of universities have now withdrawn from teacher education altogether. More or less at the same time as Gove was making these pronouncements in England, in Scotland, the former Chief Inspector of Education, Graham Donaldson, a professional educationist, of course, rather than a politician, set out a view of teaching as a complex intellectual activity to be learned through serious study of education and of the teaching of the subject, as well as through practical experience in school settings. He wrote in his report of teachers as 
reflective, accomplished and inquiring professionals who have the capacity to engage fully with the complexities of education and to be key actors in shaping and leading educational change. This, I suggest, is a much more agentic view of the work of teachers than was expressed in England. Donaldson also stressed the important role for universities in teacher education. Indeed, he urged that they should take even greater responsibility. So, how can it be that two such different views exist in these two advanced nations that are part of the same wider political unit? Is it simply that one view was expressed by a politician and the other was expressed by a very experienced professional? I would argue that the differences in these publicly stated views of teaching and how they each come to be acceptable expressions in each country can only be understood through a wider analysis of the social and cultural positioning of public education and of the occupation of teaching in these two nations. In England, teachers had become increasingly the objects of a discourse of derision, to use Stephen Ball's phrase. A discourse of derision in the mass media and through a relentless series of pamphlets from right-wing think tanks, at least since the 1970s. This had created an extended moral panic within an increasingly competitive world of education where parents are made to feel increasingly anxious about mainstream provision. In Scotland, on the other hand, where public education had long been a significant pillar of Scottish distinctiveness, along with the law and the church, education continued to be highly valued by the wider community as a social good which was offered fairly to all and provided access to opportunity for improvement for individuals and for the community. Thus, in Scotland, both schools and universities are more highly regarded and indeed continue to be trusted in a way which has been eroded in England during the late 20th century. It is only those kinds of differences that can explain such starkly differing public pronouncements on the nature of teaching and therefore such widely differing approaches to teacher education that ensue. But if there are stark differences in approach between these two nations, there is one element that they have which is very much in common. That is in the view that a teacher has responsibility for conveying knowledge to children. Whilst many reports on teacher education and teaching over the years, recent years, do refer to such elements as technological change, they don't tend to challenge the continuing understanding that teachers work in schools, where children are brought together in relatively large numbers, and that most of the work of teaching is done in classrooms, with teachers taking charge of learning for particular periods of time. That is to say, the fundamentals of the organisation of state education are not being challenged, at least not in the context of national reports. And these fundamentals have pertained since the late 19th century. 
So, does this mean that the current systems are indeed fit for purpose and that this late 19th century invention, the school, is indeed the most successful part of what the Anglo-Welsh cultural theorist Raymond Williams described as the long revolution? If we turn to Williams' analysis of the development of state education in Britain, especially England, we can see the continuing influence of the three social forces that he detected influencing that development. These forces were in constant tension with each other and the evolving education system was a result of the continuously revised settlements between them. The three influences were, first, what he called the old humanist forces, which emphasised the passing on of a body of knowledge drawn from the culture. Usually, it has to be said, high culture. Secondly, the public educators, who emphasised the importance of education for citizenship, having a literate and numerate population so that all could contribute to social development and take part in the democratic process. And thirdly, he dubbed the industrial trainers who prioritise the economic importance of education in supplying an appropriately prepared workforce to sustain the economy into the future. So, if these forces continue to operate today, although it's perhaps the industrial trainers who've been in the ascendancy over recent decades, how should we expect the challenges of the 21st century to be influencing policy and practice. The endurance of the basic organisational units of schooling is really quite extraordinary given the amount of technological and social change that we have seen. So perhaps the question we should be asking is how might we expect that the dramatic new challenges of the late 20th and early 21st centuries might impinge on the work of teachers? If globalisation is a wider political and economic process that does more to shape the context for education, it's perhaps within themes such as these, themes of the late 20th and early 21st century, that we might see more direct impact. Should such topics as globalisation itself, multiculturalism, migration, technology, including the rapid expansion of social media, the environment, and continuing and in some cases deepening inequality, should themes such as these change the nature of teaching or indeed the ways in which state education is organised? Five or six years ago, when a team of us at the University of Glasgow undertook a literature review for the Scottish Government as part of that wider review that I referred to a moment ago, we identified four different conceptions or paradigms of teaching within the policy and research literature. The first of these we called the effective teacher, where the emphasis is on the skills of teaching, the curriculum content, the performance of the teacher, and being able to measure both the teaching and the learning. This is very much what you might see as a Govian model of teaching. 
emphasis on effectiveness. But you could go beyond that to the idea of the reflective teacher, which included all of the above, but added to that the addition of knowledge about learners and consideration of the values underlying and the purposes of education. But to go a step further, we found evidence of support for the inquiring teacher, in which systematic inquiry by the teacher into all of the above was a factor. The teacher therefore required research and evaluation methods and techniques. Well, we had our fourth paradigm, which we called the transformative teacher, which was like the inquiring teacher, but it was where the inquiry became critical and looked beyond the classroom to include consideration of social context, to consider establishing moral and ethical uh, alliances with uh, people and groups around the school and the community. Indeed, the idea of taking a stance as a teacher. And that, of course, derives as much from Judith Sachs of these parts as from Marilyn Cochran Smith with her notion of uh, teaching as stance. So this is a kind of spectrum from, at the top, quite a limited view of teaching to a much more extended view of teacher professionalism. The reflective teacher may well recognise the challenges posed by the issues I was mentioning a moment ago, migration, multiculturalism, inequality. The inquiring teacher may try to see how to improve their teaching in response to those challenges. But it's in the transformative teacher that we may expect to see active responses. For example, the role of teachers in ensuring the effective learning of migrant children arriving in their classrooms, or in ensuring that all children understand the causes of and motivations for migration, although this is clearly a curricular matter as well as a pedagogical one, or in ensuring that children recognise the way in which environmental matters relate to their own communities as well as to the wider world. And the recent um, scandal around car exhaust emissions would be one example of that. And making productive use of new technologies whilst developing critical awareness of their deployment at the same time. All of these would be a part of the approach to be taken by a transformative professional working in the 21st century. Now to say something about the importance of research. Another major finding of our 2010 literature review was that there are some great weaknesses in the field of teacher education research. We have had very few longitudinal or large-scale studies of teacher education in most parts of the world for what is, as I argued earlier, widely seen as a critical aspect of, the ed of education systems. Elsewhere, I've argued for the importance of three relationships between research and teacher education. There needs to be research in teacher education, carried out within the practices and processes of teacher education. There needs to be research on teacher education. And there needs to be research about teacher education that links it 
to wider issues in society. And these three relationships should be developed in every context where teacher education takes place. And in the shape of the CT or SEAT study, studying the effectiveness of teacher education carried out here in Australia, indeed led by Di Mayer, you have a wonderful example of the kind of study that is desperately needed elsewhere. This study was longitudinal and mixed methods and independent, funded by the Australian Research Council. How I envy and congratulate you for having achieved this. And in the light of what I said earlier about the move to school-led teacher education in England, our policymakers might do well to observe one of the conclusions to the SEAT study. Their findings and analyses suggest that preparing, supporting and retaining high-quality early career teachers requires a reconsideration of teacher education across the real and or perceived divides created by the dichotomies embedded in policy taught globally. It explicitly supports notions that schooling and educating teachers be viewed as a collective responsibility between universities, schools, systems and communities within a newly created real or imagined third space. Oh, that our policymakers would read your report. And also, while considering the local context, I cannot but also express hope that the official review of teacher education in Australia, the uh, Teacher Education Ministerial Advisory Group report, Action Now Classroom Ready Teachers, will lead to further deliberation, analysis and study of teacher education. I know it's a bit of a mixed bag, but it does recommend that more evidence is gathered, more research is carried out. It's certainly peppered with many recommendations about the need for more research. But indeed, in, in addition to thinking about research on teacher education, we need to consider the relationship between the work of teachers themselves and research. And that's part of the model both of the inquiring teacher and the transformative teacher. In 2012, BIRA, the British Educational Research Association, working with the Royal Society for the Arts, set up an inquiry into the relationship between research and teacher education. Admittedly, this was in large part established as a response to what was then happening in England, although BIRA, as a UK-wide organisation, considered the situation across the four nations. Having gathered evidence across the UK and having commissioned a number of papers that reviewed evidence from around the world, our core finding was that teaching needs to be imbued with an awareness of research. Indeed, we called for all teachers in our final report, we called for all teachers to be entitled to research literacy, to be research literate. That doesn't mean that all teachers should be active researchers all of the time. Rather, it means that they should be able to access, read, evaluate and use the research findings that are relevant to their work in order to develop their practice. However, we did also go so far as to suggest that teachers should have the capacity and skills to engage in research themselves 
if the context and conditions are appropriate. As for what teachers should know, and therefore the ideas that should shape the education of teachers, we suggested that there are three overlapping areas as shown in this diagram, which I hope you can see. There are um, two areas of that which are already well established, the subject and pedagogical knowledge and the practical experience in schools. But the third dimension that we felt was equally crucial was research literacy in order to create a professional teacher with the capacity to integrate knowledge from different sources and apply and adopt them in practice. It is this understanding that led us to draw attention to the concept of research-informed clinical practice in initial teacher education, the topic of one of the papers that the inquiry commissioned, and an approach that can actually be found in our own Oxford internship scheme, in the West of Scotland clinical practice model, in a range of developments here in Australia and in the USA, as well as in Norway and elsewhere. And before moving on from the Bira report, I should mention that later this week I'll be in discussion with colleagues in Brisbane, colleagues from ATIA, the Australian Teacher Education Association, AARE, the Australian Association for Research in Education, and CADRE, which I think stands for the Committee of Associate Deans for Research in Education, be in discussion with colleagues from those three organisations to see how it may be possible to build upon the work that BIRA did within the Australian context. And we started that process some 18 months, two years ago at a AARE conference. And I should also say, in concluding this section of the talk, lest I seem over-despondent, that encouragingly, there is currently in England something of a grassroots movement underway among teachers, which is about developing research perspectives for themselves. And that's also true across the wider UK. And so we do see the idea of research literacy gradually taking hold, I think. So, to move towards my conclusion, I want to say a word or two about underlying values. Turning to the question of values in teacher education for the 21st century. The essence of the argument I've been developing is this. New challenges have been arising over recent decades. These are challenges for governments, for education systems, for schools and for teachers. The new challenges have not had and seem unlikely to have a major impact on the organisation of state schooling or on the central role of the teacher. Nevertheless, the challenges do bring new responsibilities for teachers, new challenges and new opportunities. If we continue to see teaching as a profession of moral responsibility that seeks to ensure that every learner is educated in such a way as to make the most of opportunities that suit his or her dispositions, aspirations and needs, then we do need teachers who are increasingly capable of making difficult judgments 
in complex situations based on a clear and conscious set of values. Although teachers are working in national systems, this does not translate into teachers promoting national values, as some English politicians would have it, but rather universal values such as respect, justice, equity, and the fulfilment of human potential. And in order to inform their judgments, as well as the traditional knowledge of the subject being taught and of the professional content knowledge and of professional skills, teachers need access to skills of systematic inquiry, that is, research skills, as well as access to research published by members of the wider academy. That is what the graphic from the Vera report seeks simply to illustrate. So, enduring themes of teacher education. As we move further into the 21st century, it is crucial that teaching and teacher education continue to be the focus of intensive systematic inquiry, both internally, through teacher research and practitioner research, externally, through larger scale research, large scale projects are extremely important, but thirdly, we also need what might best be called partnership research, which kind of might be seen to straddle the first two. In, that is inquiry that engages practitioners and academic researchers in collaborative communities of inquiry. At Oxford, we seek to do this through the development of the Oxford Education Deanery, an, in, an initiative which I could say more about in discussion if there's time. So these three approaches, internal, external and partnership-based research, can all be brought to bear on what I would suggest are some of the enduring themes of teacher education. Themes such as the relationship between theory and practice, the nature of professional knowledge, the sites of professional learning, the pedagogical contributions of the school and of the university, curriculum and assessment within teacher education, and the extended continuum of professional learning. And you could probably add some more themes to that list. So, inspired by the work of a number of great teacher educators and researchers, I've said many of them women, I wish to reassert the importance of research, the importance of learners' experience and development, the importance of teaching and teachers, the importance of teacher education, and the importance of effective communication. To return to my initial questions, in the 21st century, what is a teacher and what does a 21st century teacher need to know? As I hope I have shown in the foregoing analysis, the answers to these two questions are closely interconnected. So my overall answer would be something like this. A teacher is a person who has made a decision to help shape 
the citizens of the future. This is a decision that has a moral component as well as an occupational component. Teachers, therefore, need to have a clear understanding both individually and collectively of their own values, of the values which will help to sustain a peaceful, fair and just future for their students. They, the teachers, need the skills to assess the learning needs of the students for whom they're responsible in the context of a rapidly changing environment, but also to be continually assessing the impact of policy initiatives on their own practice and on the lives of learners. In order to be in a position to make such judgments, they will need research skills of critical inquiry. If this is a teacher for the 21st century, and if teachers can develop such knowledge as part of their professionalism, then not only will they make a continuing crucial contribution to the future of society, they are also likely to be increasingly valued, trusted and respected by the wider community. And I submit finally that all of this is entirely consistent with what Winifred Mercier uh, suggested some 80 years ago, 88 years ago as her vision and commitment to teacher education. A teacher who cannot or does not wish to go on learning will become a hindrance to the progress of education and a danger to the intellectual development of hundreds of children. There must be time to reflect, to assimilate, to apply time to read with freedom in a good library or on a good computer, one might add today. Time, in fact, to learn how to learn. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much, Ian. Um, I think what you've done is take us on a journey through a very thoughtful analysis of a range of issues, um, drawing on examples as you've done from many, many countries to help us think very carefully about what it is that teacher is in the 21st century. And I, I think I would add what it means to professionalise and continue to professionalise teaching and teacher education and, and I think that's really, really important. So thank you for your uh, interesting and thoughtful comments and I, without any further ado I'll open up to the floor for questions. We've got uh, one microphone up the back there and we've got another one here. Um, so please could you just sort of wave so we can see you um, and uh, if you wouldn't mind just saying who you are and uh, then Ian can respond. Hi, I'm um, Anastasia, I'm a graduate and I've just completed a master's research project and actually research was the total technology, so looking for your interest in research as a new form of about training ongoing. Um, the question I have is about more policy, I think, and assessment, and that the model of high Australia and HSC, and that, that really, um, that high stakes 
testing is quite limited. And it's industrial age, and we clearly we've gone through the technological age, and I don't think there's another career or profession that has been so stagnant, um, like education in those high stakes. What's your comment or or advice or you know recommendations for teachers who are still operating in this archaic system? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hesitate. That's not honest, but. I hesitate to um, offer advice to you in this context, which I don't know very well. If I was in England and got asked a question like that, and I think I would start by saying, are you a member of a teacher union? <laughs> are you a member of a professional association of other clients? Are there issues around these um, testing regimes? that you could raise within those organisations because, or even though it is true that such organisations in England have lost some of their influence and power, they are not completely powerless and they do have an influence on the policy process. I mean the absurdity of the testing regimes was brought home to me about two days ago when I saw on my news feed from middle of England, that uh, the Minister for Schools had um, withdrawn the uh, reading and literacy test for five-year-olds this year because it had been leaked to the press and was publicly available online. Somebody had let the cat out of the bag. So all the words in the spelling test in particular were online and so children with the help of their parents or indeed their teachers, if they felt that was morally acceptable. So there are some very odd things going on as testing becomes such a dominant feature of education. And the main question for me is always, what are the children? How are the children actually benefiting from those kinds of procedures? Um, in England, at least, you know, the um, teaching to the test has become a kind of accepted fact. My grandchildren's school in Newcastle on time, again I learned this whilst away on the travels, is uh, parents are leaving a boycott of the SATs, the standard assessment tasks in that school, because they are so opposed to it. They don't think they are educational. So parent power can also be valuable and an alliance between teachers and parents may also be part of trying to bring about um, change in systems. <laughs> Those are just a couple of thoughts in response to your question. Thank you. Thank you very much. My name is Vasim. I'm the educator at Australian International Academy in Strathfield. Uh, the question um, I'd like to pose is how do you rate or evaluate the current teaching training or education in in understanding the human, hence the psychology of the child, the student and the adolescent, in relation to how they think, how they cope, what motivates them, in order for educators to effectively engage them or support their well-being, which in turn produce confident, knowledgeable and well-rounded humans. Well, with respect, I think you answered your own question, didn't you? I mean, um, 
this is a really important issue. What, what is the kind of uh, disciplinary base of professional knowledge for teachers? Surely one expects teachers to understand the things you've just listed, which can be grouped under the heading of psychology of education. Surely we would expect teachers to understand something about the way in which their learners are fitting into society as part of their school life, and that would call the sociology of education. Surely it's appropriate for beginning teachers to understand something about the historical background to the work they're now doing. We would call that the history of education. And surely teachers should be able to analyze the language of policy and the language of education in such a way that they can make a meaningful contribution. We might call that the philosophy of education. Well, in England, psychology, sociology, history, philosophy, at one time when I was trained, trained, educated to be a teacher in the 1970s, those disciplines contributed to the curriculum of teacher education. They have been steadily eroded in England with this increasing emphasis on teaching skills and subject knowledge, both of which are incredibly important, but they have been excluded, they have been excluded through that emphasis. Those disciplines have been excluded. And so the teacher who emerges from these processes is one who may be effective in the classroom but may have less opportunities to be reflective, let alone inquiring or transformative. So I couldn't agree more with the implicit answer you gave to your own question that these things are very important for professional knowledge. Thank you. I have a very American asking a question one hour, I can relate my apologies. I'm um, wondering if you could say more about um, the practicalities that you see involved in um, the, 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 the suggestions that you're making. Um, and I, I have two questions. One about school teachers and one about teachers at an academic level. What, what do you see as the balance between um, research in the, in the subject that the person is teaching in and research and teaching. And I wonder if in both cases it's something like um, uh, with, whether you see um, the research and teaching as, as uh, kind of secondary in, in the academic context, but whether there's more flexibility in the clinical context for one to be, uh, one to be more engaging for the researcher than the other. So that's one question, is it? <laughs> and you've got a second question as well. Right, let's deal with the one. I mean, the, the kind of model of teacher education that I was uh, espousing is that the label I'm attached to it is research-informed clinical practice, which is jargon, I know. But what it means when you start to unpack it is that there's an integrated approach which recognizes the importance of both theory and practice that recognize the importance of both subject knowledge, curriculum, and educational professional knowledge, how to teach that subject, but also what, are, you know, the answer I gave to the previous question, some understanding of the processes of teaching and learning and their significance within a school, their significance within 
the wider society. So I, I wouldn't prioritize one over the other, as you're inviting me to do. I would say you need to find ways of integrating those. But I would also say, and this I will develop the thing about the Oxford Education Deanery, because what we've been trying to do in that conception, which is a partnership both between our Department of Education, which has got a long track record of successful teacher education, but also the wider University of Oxford, including its student volunteer service, its museums, its library, and so on, and colleagues out in about 20 or so local schools, bringing those uh, partners together to share in a community of practice and inquiry where all of the kinds of knowledge I was talking about a moment ago are recognized as significant, but each partner comes to that partnership with a different agenda, a different set of motivations, a different set of interests, depending on whether they're a school teacher, a student teacher, a university lecturer in education, a, a university lecturer in physics, all come with different motivations. But they're seeking to share in share their resources of knowledge and intellectual skills and to work professionally through from in um, pre-service teacher education into in-service teacher education, continuing development for teachers, and in research. So it's a kind of multifaceted, multi-relational, multi-layered operation, which has lots of complexity, but with goodwill and commitment, and uh, you know the kind of humane, universal rationalism that Helga Eng was committed to, I think is possible. So that's my answer to your first question. I dare you to ask a second one. Thank, thank you very much. <laughs> I here. Uh, can you can ask a second one? Didn't want to, didn't want to put you off. Uh, hi, I was wondering, what is the uptake uh, that you see on the ground of the so-called, maybe call them 21st century, pedagogical approach of things like dissolving subject silos in the high school context, things like project-based inquiry, project-based learning, sorry, inquiry-driven learning, things that the research shows us um, have profound learning impacts schools find very confronting to implement. Right. That's another little question, which is about curriculum and pedagogy and probably about assessment as well. And my first, my starting point for answering that question is to say, actually, there's another example of what goes around and comes around. When I was uh, learning to be a teacher in the 1970s, much of the theory and research that I was encouraged to read was about integrated curriculum, about topic-based learning. I was trained to be a primary teacher, but there were secondary schools doing that in England as well, that had theme-based approaches into what we now would call interdisciplinary approaches. In Scotland, in the curriculum reform that they had for the beginning of uh, the 21st century, they did make moves towards a more thematic 
approach in the curriculum, and teachers were initially very resistant to it, and had grown to rely on a tightly prescribed, very detailed curriculum, curriculum 5 to 14 it was called, when a curriculum for excellence was brought in in the early parts of the first decade of this century. Um, they resisted it in the way I think you're implying, because they didn't have that kind of prop to lean on. And they had to re-explore their own professional agency and autonomy in making regular decisions about not only how to teach, but what to teach as well. So I, I do think it's another example of how education policy does have a tendency to be a bit like a pendulum in some respects. And I didn't, didn't really say very much about school curriculum when I was talking about um, what the policy makers in England that I was concerned with in my talk have been doing is changing the structures and organisation of schooling and teacher education. Um, they have interestingly somewhat backed off the curriculum in the last few years. And so we might again see in England as well as in Scotland some resurgence of teacher professionalism relating to curriculum and dare I say assessment as well. So it's a bit of a long way round, but it I think I recognise the question you're asking and saying that that has been a long-standing part of the debate in education, which has been more or less visible at different times. And if it's becoming more visible here at the moment, then yeah, teachers should get involved and argue about it, say what they do and do not think is appropriate for them to be deciding. Okay. Yeah, I think we've got time for one more. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 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 um, I have to that. Um, my question is directed towards your recent global travails. Um, at the end, you're talking often about the time required for a teacher to do this, the time for a teacher to do that, hoping to do leading, and the time for a teacher to do another thing. Of course, time is the thing which your average teacher desires more than anything else in order to pursue those interests. Um, I'm just interested in terms of face-to-face -face contact hours in the daily life of a teacher globally, has there been much correlation or anecdotal um, discussion that we can offer that has an experience where a teacher with fewer perhaps, uh, say for example, your contact hours were half of what may be in Australia, but is actually considered a full-time load, offers therefore that teacher the opportunity to have the time to experience and investigate and research as you have mentioned here. I'm not sure I can give a full answer to that, but I'll try two tacks. One is to suggest you go and look at the TALIS report from the OECD. Is it called TALIS stands for I think, Teaching and Learning International Survey Study? one or the other, but if you just put in TALIS into a uh, web search, you will find on that study um, accounts of the hours spent in classroom contact uh, by teachers in different systems. And even within systems, of course, it varies quite a lot in, 
in, across the UK, I think it'd be fair to say that most primary teachers have a lot more contact time in the week than most secondary teachers. Um, the second part of my answer would be to say that, of course, time is of the essence for teachers. It's a real pressure. And the, the quotation from Nicky Morgan about you know, how teachers are um, finding life pretty tough at the moment, although she'd like us to keep quiet about it so that we don't put people off. How honest is that? Um, nevertheless, time is one of the factors for teachers in the UK. When, um, when I was working at the University of Glasgow, we uh, did a project in the wake of a um, settlement with teachers, with the teacher unions on pay and conditions that had taken hold in 2001, which set out that they would have a 20% pay rise and a limit of 35 hours on their working week. Right? There was a lot of envy in England when that agreement was reached in Scotland. And in Glasgow, we were commissioned to undertake what was called the teacher working time research, which involved asking hundreds of teachers to fill in a weekly diary of their activities. And um, this 35-hour maximum working week, that wasn't contact time, that was working week, um, turned out to be somewhat uh, an illusion. The average for a classroom-based teacher is 40 hours of work. And for a senior teacher and uh, leader at the school, the average was over 50 hours per week. And so, you know, there, there may well be notions of how a teacher should be able to manage their work within a certain number of hours. But each teacher, this is part of being a profession with moral responsibility, each teacher makes their own judgment about how they can uh, manage their workload and how much time they should devote to their work in addition to the classroom contact time that they have. So teacher time is a really important issue, but it's also a very complex issue. But if you want to know about international variations, do go to the Talis study. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you once again, Ian, for your uh, generous time and your great ideas, and thank you for your contribution, everyone. Um, let me just take a moment to thank Sydney Ideas Group for organising this this evening. Um, as uh, I mentioned earlier, and as Ian also mentioned, within uh, in, in a month's time, we'll be having another one of these with Emeritus Professor John Furlong, also from the University of Oxford. So please keep in touch with us about the details of that and we'd love to see you all here for that one. But let me now invite you to join us for some drinks and nibbles outside and please thank me finally, thank, join me in thanking finally Ian for his wonderful talk.